Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very excited about our founder today. I mean, she's on this rocket ship. You know, we're going to be talking a lot about healthcare stuff. You know, very much needed, by the way, you know, the disruption in this space. And, and I think that you're going to find, you know, the story of our founder very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ellie Kaplan. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So originally, you know, you were born there in Denver, obviously very cold. But yeah, so how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Denver was great. I didn't, when I was first born there, I didn't live there for very long. Uh, my dad joined the Indian Health Service as a pediatrician, really to escape the Vietnam War. And so I spent the very early years of my childhood living on Indian or Native American reservations in Washington State and in Oklahoma. And um, it was an incredible experience. I lived there until around seventh grade. And what I saw was how healthcare at the most basic level is delivered. And it really shaped my views in terms of thinking about what's important to me uh, and the role that healthcare can play in someone's life from an access perspective and, and just in terms of what an impact it can, it can have. Was there like a, maybe like a, a specific event that maybe you remember that uh, gave you that push to think, you know what, I think I'm going to do something in healthcare one day? Yeah, I mean, it was a few things. Uh, one was, I remember a few different times where my dad, you know, was treating some incredibly sick kids. And in one in one case, uh, it was a kid who who probably would have died had he not been treating him. And the family was so grateful, but they had no way to pay him. And so I remember one night, late at night, the, the child's father came over to our house and he had uh, brought one of his cows uh, that he had slaughtered and, and cut up into steaks for us. And that was his payment. And, you know, it was an extremely expensive contribution for him, but the only way that he could. And it really stayed with me. Um, and so that was kind of the first impetus. And then the second was when I was in business school, um, my grandfather, who was also a physician, uh, started to show signs of Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, we, I was pre-med in college. We had, you know, lots of doctors and healthcare uh, workers in in our family, and despite that, it was really difficult for my grandfather to get a diagnosis and to really understand what was going on with him, and then to get any kind of treatment. And um, you know, I think it, what was clear to me was that if it was difficult for us to get this kind of information about his health, you know, where we were so you know had such a deep understanding of how healthcare works and you know, get access to the very best in care. What was it the experience like for for people who didn't have that? And then, you know, thinking back on my time, uh, seeing how healthcare operated uh, at the most ba basic level on these Indian reservations really shaped what I wanted to do with my career after after I graduated, shortly after I graduated from business school. And so, um, that's that was the genesis of, of starting this company. 
So, and, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. You know, I, I'm wondering then, you know, like what got you into the direction of politics, you know, which is what you ended up studying. I mean, do you think maybe it was like something about navigating policy or how to, you know, pass regulations or new laws or what got you into politics? It was, um, it really was this belief, which I still hold, though, I, I think I'm a little bit more cynical or jaded now, that you could take an idea or a set of ideas, and very often that set of ideas came from a person, and put them into a position of power and then have an impact on society. And so, you know, if you think about the role that policy plays in in shaping industry, in shaping, you know, social services, uh, it all, it comes down to people and what, what they believe in. And so um, it really was this idea of um, of working to put someone into a position of power in order to change systems, and so I, you know, I worked in uh, my last year in college. I worked on Bill Clinton's uh, presidential campaign. Um, we uh, helped get him elected, and then uh, I went into the White House uh, after graduating, and it was just the sheer excitement of um, having accomplished that together with this team of unbelievably smart, talented, energetic people. And then having, you know, it, to a certain degree, it felt like the world was our oyster in terms of thinking about uh, what our values were and how to then take those values and, and turn them into law. Now, that's not exactly how politics actually works. I mean, there's, um, you know, I, I think I now have a, a, a more sophisticated or or cynical, depending on how you want to slice it, view on on it. But, you know, it has a lot of applications to what we as entrepreneurs do as well. You take an idea, um, and that idea may be um, in the form of a product or technology, and and birth it and bring it to uh, fruition and, and, and to markets. Now, it's quite the jump, you know, going from government, you know, to to business, right, to 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 really the private sector. And and in this case, I mean, for you, it sounds like the going to business school, you know, was a really nice shift of gears. I guess you went to to Harvard Business School. But at what point do you realize, hey, I think that maybe it's time for me to go to business school. And why did you decide that that was the right decision at that point in time in your career? Um, you know, as we discussed, the early part of my career really was spent in, in governments, in government. Uh, I worked at the UN for a, a couple of years. I had, I did have some time in, in finance and private equity, but what I was really interested in, um, after having spent so much time understanding the role that policy and large governmental or, or multinational organizations can play in design and development and, and, and creating of uh, markets was then the flip side of that, was the role that the private sector actually plays in, um, in the world. And specifically when I was at the United Nations, um, I was the deputy chief of staff for the United Nations Development Program, which is the largest UN agency. And the role of UNDP is to go into these developing or emerging markets and to put in place um, 
organizations and and help governments create policies in order to shape the economy. And um, and so what was what I saw during that experience was uh, how government or or these large international organizations interacted with the private sector in order to do that. And that was really um, what got me very excited, as well as looking at at the role of entrepreneurs and uh, early stage private capital uh, to then supplement and fuel that. And so it was wanting to have more experience on the private side doing that work, but recognizing that um, I didn't, you know, I really didn't have the experience that I would need in order to to get jobs doing that. And so that was that was the focus of going to business school was to sort of give me that those private sector um, tools and skills in order to make that happen. So entering startup world. So what was what was that? You know, you finish your 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 graduate degree at Harvard and then, you know, startups. How do you get into startups? So we had moved to Atlanta, Georgia at that point, and I was very interested in learning as much as I could about sort of the startup um, ecosystem. And in Atlanta at that time, it was really uh, in its infancy. Um, There were a few successful startups, uh, but it wasn't what, you know, Silicon Valley was, um, you know, today or even then. Um, but there was a lot of uh, a, a lot of the sort of components that you need in order to create a, a, that ecosystem. So we had Georgia Tech that was right there that was producing all these really brilliant engineers and and product people. We had the beginning of a sort of a venture capital network and a lot of you know the other sort of components that you need in order to to help seed a uh, a strong startup community and so um i was really interested in sort of understanding what was needed in order to take that those different components and and help build more and so worked uh, at georgia tech uh with a few people to create a um, the very first accelerator incubator program um, right in downtown Atlanta. And we brought in uh, young um, uh, startups from largely out of Georgia Tech and we taught them how to be startups. So I had to learn what was really valuable and what would make a startup successful as part of starting and running that program. And then once I kind of had a bit more insight into what was required and had, you know, the personal experience of of having a loved one uh, be impacted by Alzheimer's and a deep understanding of how healthcare worked and wanting to do something at long last in healthcare, uh, it was then that I actually transitioned to to starting NeuroTrack. So then let's talk about NeuroTrack, because obviously, you know, as they say, ideas, you know, they take time to incubate. They're there. We don't even know they're there, but obviously there is certain events that push us over the edge to really take action. You know, it sounds like, you know, for you, the incubation of this idea, you know, was really personal. And basically, you know, like I, I want to ask you here, I mean, at what point do you realize, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take action here. You know, I'm going to I'm going to go for it. You know, it was the encouragement of a lot of people that I was talking to who said, you know, this is something that's so deeply needed. And if you don't do it, who is going to do it? And so uh, it was a leap. I had never, you know, I think had I known then 
what I know now about uh, about starting a company, but also starting a company in the healthcare space, and certainly, um, you know, for a disease that is as complex as Alzheimer's is, I, I still would have done it. But I, you know, I think it would have um, I, my eyes would have been a little uh, more open. But it really was this view that the world needs this and um, no one else is doing it. And so why don't I give it a try? And, you know, as you, as you know, so often you, you start these things and you don't really have a sense of where it's going to go. But in this case, all of the important trends were there. So, you know, we had an aging population that it was clear was, was going to continue grow to grow at a, at a very rapid rate, we saw where technology was going, and it was early days of digital health, and really this understanding that uh, technology was going to play a different kind of role when it came to uh, to both healthcare products and healthcare services. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that. You know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So so in this case for you, I mean, what were the early days like? Because, I mean, building a company like this is is very complicated. You know, I think that, you know, first and foremost, I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Neurotrack? How do you guys make money? And then also, what were the early days like? Yeah, so the business model has shifted uh, significantly over time um, as the Alzheimer's space has grown and changed. Early days, we started with a digital diagnostic or assessment tool. So our the first iteration of our product was a, a digital test, and, and it still exists, but in a slightly different format, a digital test that uses eye tracking to uh, assess impairment in the part of the brain called the hippocampus that stores memory. And so because we could identify this impairment and um, see uh, 
you know, really be able to find people who were at the very earliest stages of, of Alzheimer's, um, it was clear that the market for us would be working with pharmaceutical companies who at that time had very robust Alzheimer's programs or um, uh, cognitive programs and trying to, uh, you know, to develop drugs that were considered what they call disease modifying. So that would actually either stop the disease or significantly slow its progression. And so early days of the company um, and go to market were completely aligned around working with biotech and pharma to help them better develop drugs for, for Alzheimer's disease. What happened shortly after a lot of those contracts kicked off was that the drug started to fail. And in fact, every drug, uh, every drug that was in the pipeline and every company that we were working with, their drugs failed. So we were suddenly left um, with this very great, you know, strong uh, diagnostic tool, but no, no market. Um, and, you know, the, the pharma company shut down their programs. It was, you know, they were done. Uh, and, and what resulted was us really sort of taking a step back and thinking about, okay, if there is no therapeutic market for our diagnostic and, and, you know, in healthcare, uh, what is needed to scale a diagnostic tool is a therapeutic program. What else might exist? And it was then that we started doing work around the role that lifestyle can play in slowing the progression of, of Alzheimer's disease. And the science is now very well established. I mean, we were part of some of those very early studies that was looking at the role that diet and exercise and sleep and stress play in um, mitigating risk for Alzheimer's and uh, built a product and so essentially created our own therapeutic. That was what caused that that breakthrough. Now, in your case, you know, you guys have raised quite a bit of money, you know, 60, 60 million, and you've had, you know, like incredible investors jumping in. I mean, legends, legends like, for example, Peter Thiel. Um, how has been the capital raising um, side of things here? I mean, what, how, how has been that journey um, going from one cycle to the next to raising, you know, this amount of money and also from such great investors too? Yeah, I mean, um, fundraising is never easy, right? Uh, we have phenomenal investors with very deep pockets who really believe in what we're trying to do, but also understand just how complicated it is. I mean, you know, in healthcare, Alzheimer's is really considered the greatest unmet healthcare need. And so there's this understanding that if you win in this market, which we believe we will, then, you know, it's worth, uh, it's worth the time that it will take and, and sort of the complexity of that path to go for. Um, and so I would say, you know, fundraising is always challenging. Um, but I think when you find the right set of investors who, who understand and take the time to really dig into the problem, it makes absolute sense. And, and now um, we're at this moment when uh, that, you know, honestly, we've been waiting for for the last 10 years. I mean, I would say that where we are today, we've been planning for for the entire lifetime of the company. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that. But that certainly changes uh, the the um, 
environment for fundraising. You know, I won't lie, like at times it has been challenging. Uh, you know, Alzheimer's is a scary disease. It's a complicated disease. And all we have seen is failure. I mean, the road is littered with drugs that have failed, with other diagnostics that have failed. So not for the faint of heart, but um, if there is one thing I have, it is uh, grit and perseverance. And um, I am not going to stop until, uh, until we are successful. So give us a little of, um, of, of an insider, you know, lens here, you know, when it comes to fundraising. You know, I know that when you met uh, one of the first investors there, Peter Thiel, you know, founder of PayPal, early investor in Facebook. I mean, like incredible legend in, the, in, in Silicon Valley. How is it like to get someone like that, you know, that caliber to literally just go for a short meeting and then all of a sudden this person clears the calendar for the remainder of the day? How do you do that? <laughs> um, you know, I think first and foremost, I will say, you know, when you are fundraising, do do your research and understand who you're pitching to and what they care about. We went into that meeting with uh, with Peter, um, knowing that he was deeply interested in longevity, that he had been making some investments uh, in in. This, that space. Uh, it was early days for him from an, both an investment and an understanding perspective. And, you know, Alzheimer's is a huge barrier to living a very long and full life. And um, so when we went in, we were initially scheduled to, to meet for 30 minutes. Um, uh, VCs are often very busy and he was a little late and uh, came in and sort of, you know, said, give me your pitch. And what was fascinating was um, watching him while we were pitching um, because it was clear that a light bulb went off for him kind of midway through. And what that revelation was, was um, the fact that uh, if you're in the mode of developing drugs, and he had been making some investments in, uh, in early stage Alzheimer's drugs, uh, that if you're in, if you're if you're developing a drug, you need to be able to test that drug on the right type of individual. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got to very carefully select someone who is the appropriate candidate for that drug trial. And I think the epiphany for him was in recognizing or realizing that uh, the development of Alzheimer's drug drugs hinged on finding people who were early enough in the progression of the disease such that the drug could really have an impact and that that wasn't happening. And so it was a um, an important parallel investment. So, you know, in order for the drugs that he was investing in to be successful, they, they needed our tool. And so uh, our 30-minute meeting quickly went to a full day and he brought in his partners. And, you know, 24 hours later, we, it was a classic, iconic Silicon Valley uh, story. You know, 24 hours later, we had a term sheet and we were off to the races. And you bring in somebody like Peter Thiel and, and it doesn't, uh, it's not very hard to then fill out the rest of the round and um, have a successful launch. So now I guess for for what you guys are up to do, you know, when it comes to, you know, taking a look at what's going on in, in the market, you know, there's concerns about the uh, growing, you know, size of the senior, you know, folks in the in the U.S. Why is that the case? 
Um, well, you know, it, the seniors or the baby boomer population is the fastest growing part of our population. Every single day, 10,000 people become Medicare eligible. Alzheimer's disease is a disease of the aging, and it has a high prevalence among uh, people over the age of 65. So you take a a large group of people who are susceptible to this disease without any real solutions, that becomes a, a, a huge problem from a, both a cost and a care management perspective. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a problem, but it's also an opportunity. And I think it has taken the fact that um, this moment where Alzheimer's, you know, where there's such a large population and Alzheimer's is such a significant um, portion of uh, of the cost related to caring for that population to really create the, the healthcare market that we're now going after. Um, and that is one of uh, diagnosing and managing this disease better and to, to do so at scale such that anyone anywhere gets access to the kind of information and then treatment that they need in order to to manage the disease. So as we're thinking about now, uh, NeuroTrack, for the people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? I would say, you know, we're still small at this point, less than 100 people, but um uh, working hard to to uh, to scale and and grow as is needed to in order to really you know tackle uh, the size of the problem that we're going after. So as we're thinking about the size of the problem, scale, growth, you know, obviously that has to do a lot with the vision, right? So if we if I was to give you the opportunity of going to sleep tonight, and you would wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? Um, what it looks like is that NeuroTrack is the new gold standard for how we assess, diagnose, manage, and, and treat uh, people who are at risk for cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And from a tactical perspective, um, that means that we are working inside the primary care offices of anyone who is treating a patient, a patient population of older people. Um, and, uh, we're having an impact. Uh, and that impact is in actually improving outcomes. So people are understanding what their risk level is, where, you know, their memory is, uh, not at all times, but frequently. And uh, they have the tools that they need in order to, to manage that condition. Um, you know, you think about where diabetes or cancer was 10, 15, 20 years ago uh, and where it is today. You know, you get a, a diabetes diagnosis and one, you find out that you have diabetes, so you get that diagnosis. And then two, you get everything you need in order to manage it. Same with any other significant healthcare condition. That doesn't really exist for Alzheimer's today. You know, we like to say that, that you know, standardizing cognitive health care, there is no standard and we will become the standard. Um, and, and so the vision or what we'd like to wake up tomorrow morning, and I'm, I'm really hoping, Alejandra, that, that uh, 
that this does happen tomorrow when I wake up, but that, um, but that that has changed dramatically and that people, when you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, it doesn't feel like a death sentence. It feels like something that you and your family are, are able to manage. Wonderful. Now we're talking about the future here. So if we are able to talk about the past and talk about the past with, you know, some reflection, because I mean, you've been at it now, you know, with this company for 10 years, you know, 10 years, startup, you know, years, that's like, like dog years, right? I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> unbelievable, right? A lot of battles. I should be like, yeah, 80 years old at this point. I mean, a lot of battles, you know, constant battlefield for 10 years. That's incredible. Now, if I was to give you the opportunity of going into a time machine and you're able to go back in time, you know, you're able to go back in time to, you know, perhaps that moment where you were experiencing, you know, that uh, challenge, you know, with, with, with Alzheimer's, you know, in the family and, and you were able, you know, let's say, you know, at that moment where you were thinking about like what to do about it, if you could go back in time and have a sit down with that younger Ellie and give that younger Ellie one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Not just one piece of advice, but I think um, it would be a team matters more than anything else. It's all about the people and having a, a team that um, is completely aligned around uh, the same vision, never compromising on that. And so, you know, if there's somebody who's not working, you got to move on. Uh, and move on quickly. I would say, two, have your village. Uh, in the last, I would say, three or three years, um, I have uh, slowly developed a network of um, other female CEOs and founders who are working in healthcare. And we have each other's back like nothing else. And, you know, when there's a problem, um, they're the first group that I reach out to because, as you know, being a, a CEO and a founder is a really lonely job. And um, historically, there haven't been as many women founders and CEOs, particularly of healthcare startups. And so it's taken a little while to pull that village together. But now that I have it, I think it's, um, it is game changing. And so uh, to the degree that I could have told myself to get that group together sooner, um, you know, I think that would be, uh, be very valuable. Um, and then, you know, the last one is, uh, is to not ever compromise on, on what is most important to you. Um, and I, and I have never compromised on what's most important to me. Uh, and you know, what I think is most important to, to the patients that we will be helping, uh, uh in terms of, you know, having, um, uh, clinical products that are deeply scientifically uh, validated and developed. Um, and that was something that, uh, that we never compromised on. We never will compromise on, but it, it's harder <laughs> when, you, when you have to take the time and put in that investment to make that happen. So know what your values are and stick with them. I love it. Now, Eli, for the people that are listening that would love to, you know, reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Ah, I love it. Um, they can email me, Ellie, E-L-L-I, at neurotrack.com. Amazing. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, Alejandra. Thank you.
If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.